The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello. It's been sold an estimated two and a half billion times and given away for free many multiples of that. It's the Hebrew Bible, or Old Testament, and it's probably the most famous book in the history of the world. Telling the dramatic story of an all-powerful God and his relationship with his chosen people, the Bible sets the infinite justice of an omnipotent being against the humans whom he has given free will and who often use that capacity to commit acts of evil or otherwise displease their creator. In 1886, the philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche wrote, In the Jewish Old Testament there are men, things, and speeches in so grand a style that Greek and Indian literature have nothing to compare to it. One stands with awe and reverence before these tremendous remnants of what man once was. But where does the Old Testament fit into the history of literature? What are its literary qualities? And what can it tell us about the human condition 3,000 years ago and today? I'm Jack Wilson. Welcome to the History of Literature. Hey, grown-ups. The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast. And those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Episode 2 the Hebrew Bible. Okay, this is a charged one. This is a book that matters deeply to a lot of people. And let's set some ground rules. We're not here today to argue the merits of any one religion or any particular religious book. Thought I'd start by giving you my perspective. I grew up with the Bible. I went to church and Sunday school once a week for about 10 years. It was a small but steady part of my upbringing. We went to church, I think, because that's what people did where I lived. These were good churches, good communities in a small town. We had an annual smorgasbord fundraiser. Every week, women went to the church basement in the kitchen and made donuts, which was another fundraiser. You get the idea. That was me for about 10 years or so. That was my childhood. Then I stopped going. haven't really looked back. I remember as a child feeling frustrated, disappointed. I wanted answers. I pushed the logic of religion as far as it would go, and eventually it left off, and where it left off left me cold. Things seemed to dead end in the, well, you must have faith, or God works in mysterious ways. 
Those are the answers for many people. It was not the answer for me. I would say that my morals or my values are mostly secular. How do I know, really? I mean, they're intertwined with the stories that I learned, the things I was taught when I was going to church. God and Jesus and ministers in the Bible were certainly a, a big part of that. Then I spent years reading literature, not really returning to the Bible. The Bible didn't really re-enter my life until after I had kids. When my mother came to visit, and uh, she brought with her a book of uh, Bible stories. She read a few of the stories to the Old Testament to my kids and scared the hell out of them. Uh, <laughs> I guess I guess that's literally the point, is to scare the hell out of you. Well, not really. That's not what she was trying to do. She had only good intentions in mind. I think this is the point Nietzsche was making. I read in the introduction the quote by Nietzsche, the Old Testament is raw and powerful. It's strength pitted against strength. And why wouldn't it be, given where it was written and when it was written? Remember, we saw this in the Epic of Gilgamesh. We saw warrior kings. We saw the importance of strength and victory on the battlefield to being a leader at that time. What is God or Yahweh if not a warrior God? But I'm jumping ahead a little bit. I'm still in the story with my mother and my kids reading the Bible stories and the fear that my son expressed. He was four years old. He complained at dinner that the Bible was too violent. And I took a look at some of the stories, and they were. They were shockingly brutal. The vindictiveness is inescapable. The carnage was a lot more violence than they were used to at age four. I could see my mother's feelings were a little hurt, though. Um, she hadn't intended to provoke that kind of a reaction. And so I tried to smooth things over and said, well, you know, maybe that's just because you're reading the Old Testament stories. I think the New Testament gets a lot better. Things go from an eye for an eye to turn the other cheek. Why don't you skip ahead to Jesus, the stories about Jesus? And my son's eyes grew large and he said, they killed Jesus. <laughs> Which... That's the thing about the Bible. It is a grown-up book. It's for adults. It's easy to lose sight of that with all the Sunday school lessons and moral parable trappings that envelop these stories. And the New Testament does get gentler, I think, with Jesus' teachings, if not exactly his life history. But it's easy to forget for those of us who haven't spent much time with the Bible since our childhood or maybe have never spent much time with the Bible. It's easy to forget what grown-up stories these are, what these stories and histories and poems and prophecies are sometimes metaphorical and elliptical. They engage our intellect to encourage us toward a deeper plane of understanding, and they're often brutal, stark, direct, shockingly powerful, as vigorous and compelling as anything written before or since. Let's keep that in mind as we dive in and try to fit this book into a history of literature. Now, to do that, we need to set aside religion, or let me put it this way. You don't have to set aside your religion. I'm not asking you to do that. You can believe the Bible literally, word for word, every word. It's all true. It all happened. That's fine. Or you cannot believe any of it. That's fine with me, too. You can be somewhere on the sliding scale where most of us reside, where there's truths in it. Some of it is meant to be understood metaphorically, which is also can be another kind of truth because 
God can't communicate certain truths literally, so we use stories and figurative language to explain the inexplicable. That's fine with me too. Let's all peacefully coexist for now. There's room on this spectrum for everyone. Let's wear two hats, a religious one and a secular one, just for the purpose of this episode, so we can celebrate the literary aspects of this book. And let's all admire together the dazzling success of this book. This book, 3,000 years old, told, written, and compiled across the centuries, and as popular today as any book can claim to be. It's been a bestseller forever. Hundreds of translations printed in every language, studied, preached, commented upon, rejected, discovered, blamed, praised, followed, memorized, taught, loved, hated, and absolutely central to our culture. Three major religions, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, all flow from this book, so that today, more people than not claim the book as part of their religious tradition. You can't love books and not come to grips with that. The Bible is a very successful book. It is truly an incredible book, and we haven't even opened the cover. And when we do, what stories pour out for sheer narrative power, the Bible is hard to beat. Let's pit it against, I don't know, Harry Potter, Charles Dickens. Let's, th- let's take Harry Potter. There's some great scenes in there, some great characters. It's new and fresh and exciting. It took the planet by storm. It's hard to imagine a book being more popular or successful than Harry Potter has been in the last 20 years. And yet, think about Adam and Eve sitting in the Garden of Eden with the tree of knowledge and the tempting serpent or their offspring Cain murdering his brother Abel or Abraham lifting his knife on God's command prepared to sacrifice his beloved son Isaac or Noah gathering two of every animal and building the ark to survive a great flood and repopulate the world or Jonah swallowed by a whale or Joseph sold to slavery by his brothers David battling the giant Goliath with his slingshot, Daniel bravely facing down lions, or the Tower of Babel in which every language is spoken, or Samson sharing the secret of his power with his double-crossing lover Delilah. A hundred other stories like this. These are (laughs) what stories these are. Being a human is hard. It's scary. It's violent. Physically, we're frail. Emotionally, we're frail too. Reading the Old Testament with an open mind encourages empathy. The stripped down stories that go straight to the heart of what it means to be human. Yes, you can be told what not to do, as Adam and Eve were, but don't you want to? Don't you want to find out? Don't you want to live by your own rules? Of course you do. If you were Adam or Eve, would you have eaten the fruit? Of course you would have. Humanity compels it. That's why nobody really blames Eve. She's not a witch or a monster. When she's painted, she's not painted as some troll-like vixen. We know in our heart of hearts that we'd have done the same thing because we are human. That's what I mean by these stories going straight to the heart of what it means to be human, even though the circumstances of the stories might be very remote from our own lives, our own daily lives today. There's At the core, there's something very human about it, about the psychology of the humans that we see in the stories that resonates with us today. 
there's evil in this world. We all know that. We might call it by a different name, but it's hard to deny that there are bad things, pain and suffering. And the Garden of Eden pits knowledge against blissful ignorance. That may be the central question of being human, the central issue we have to wrestle with. We saw it last time in Gilgamesh. Gilgamesh was also uh, notable for taking on that issue. What do we do with this knowledge? How do we live with the knowledge that we have? We humans know what it's like to want, to hate, and be hated. We know what it's like to be Abel, the good son, the dutiful son. And we know what it's like to be Cain. Even if we're not murderers ourselves, we know in our hearts that Cain's impulse was a human one. And we have to understand that aspect of humanity if we're to understand life and our world at all. And Noah, would we have his strength, his courage, knowing what he was about to face, knowing that he would endure the laughter of his peers, and knowing that he would survive them all? How does, how does one handle the guilt? And Abraham, asked by his God to murder his son, ready to do it, binding his son on top of a mountain, raising the knife, the scene of fear and trembling that so shook Kierkegaard thousands of years later. It's a story that stretches our understanding of what it means to be human. We might reject the idea that any God worth worshiping wouldn't have put Abraham through it, or Isaac for that matter, and we might think we'd act differently, disobeying a nonsensical order rather than following it. But what else has been as successful in directly posing these existential questions as the Bible? Maybe Hamlet. Anyway, it's a short list. I could go on. I don't think I'm halfway through Genesis yet, the first book. And ahead of us lies four more books of Moses, then more books of prophecies, histories, poetry, and wisdom. We barely have time to discuss all of this in our time we have for an episode today. I'll save some for a bonus episode. It's a shame, really. I only have time to briefly mention the poetry of the Psalms, the elliptical love poems of the Song of Solomon, and all the work that's been done over the centuries to translate the Hebrew, the original Hebrew, into Greek, or to translate the Greek into English, the King James Version, for example, which itself is a great literary achievement. The translation of the King James Version gave us phrases like eye for an eye and den of thieves, skin of my teeth, fight the good fight, eat, drink, and be merry. That <laughs> translation of the King James Version, vengeance is mine, woe is me. The translation of the King James Version deserves an episode of its own. We barely have time to discuss any of this today. We, so instead... We're going to focus on a central issue, or at least what I think of as a central issue. Where does the Bible fit into our story? Unlike Gilgamesh, an epic story that helped explain to its listeners the origins of a nation and the thrilling adventures of what it means to be a hero, the Old Testament is the sacred writings of the Jewish people. Who were these people? They arose among the nomadic peoples of Arabia, starting with the patriarchs, perhaps those in the biblical accounts like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who lived around 1800 BC and were remembered later as Hebrews, a word meaning wanderer. One group of these people traveled down to Egypt, which was then ruled by pharaohs, 
and were later expelled from Egypt and returned to Mesopotamia. Why were they special? What did these people invent? Perhaps most significantly, they appear to have been the first believers in a monotheistic religion that was both coherent and rational, marked by an abstract notion of God, a divine creator who created everything and stood apart from his creation. The Yahweh worshipped by this singular tribe was transcendent. He shared his power with no fellow gods, and he made a covenant with his people. This, too, was something new. If Israel did something, something desirable would follow. We are a long way from other contemporary religions found in Mesopotamia or Egypt. Written in Hebrew by an estimated 30 contributors over a period of 700 years, the Old Testament is the crowning achievement of the recorded thought of its time, and perhaps of any time. We can admire and love the worthy epics of Gilgamesh and the tales of Homer, but nothing from that era comes close to the complexity, energy, and dazzling diversity of the Old Testament. I spoke of the humans in the book before, Adam, Eve, Noah, Moses, and all the others, who together formed the rich, teeming humanity in the Hebrew Bible. But there's another character in there that runs through all those stories. Yahweh. Believed by some to be one of many tribal deities in the pagan era, just another war god who developed into God with a capital G. Perhaps this explains his mood swings, his violent bursts of temper, his irascibility, his vanity. And this is the central literary point that I want to make. This is an amazing book, and Yahweh, in my opinion, is the most amazing part of it. Imagine for a moment that the Bible is just stories. No matter what you believe, imagine that this is just a work of fiction, a collection of short stories that someone has just handed you for the first time. You open the book and start reading. I don't think you'd get very far before you'd be asking, wait, who is this character God and what on earth is he doing? Let's skip the creation and go to the first stories where humans appear. Take a look at where how God appears in them. In the first one, Adam and Eve are living in a garden. God has commanded them. This is the first thing we hear him say to humans. He's commanded them not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He says, Thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. After Eve goes on to explain this to the serpent, the serpent says, Ye shall not surely die, for God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. Let's pause there for a moment and point out that, of course, God has lied to Adam and Eve. <laughs> Eating the fruit did not cause them to die. The serpent is actually the one telling the truth. What does God do when Eve and then Adam eat the fruit? Remember, God is omnipotent. He can do whatever he wants. Could he give them another chance? Could he say, I know I gave you free will. I know I fibbed a little about what would happen. I created a serpent who beguiled you, but, well... I admit it's a little hard to blame you for what you did. You wanted to be like gods. You maybe even thought that knowledge would help a little, make you more worthy to be my creations. Well, too bad. I am displeased. When 
Eve and Adam eat the fruit of the tree of knowledge, God curses the serpent and makes him crawl on its belly from then on. I've never, <laughs> never really stopped to imagine what it did before that. I guess it had legs, maybe. Uh, and God makes childbirth painful for Eve and basically for all women. For Adam, he cursed the ground and made it full of thorns and thistles. And from then on, Adam had to work for his food. And this, too, would be the way of men and women from then on. They were kicked out of the Garden of Eden. Why? Why did God do that? For a mistake? For disobedience? Today, we argue over generational guilt. How much do we owe for the sins and crimes of generations past? When are reparations appropriate? We look at issues like slavery or institutionalized racism. We believe that some form of retribution is appropriate for Holocaust survivors or other victims of society, not just for the victims themselves, but for the generations of victims that follow. And yet here we have in the Old Testament all of humanity punished for the action of one or two people who ate a piece of fruit. Minor acts of disobedience. Wow. That's Yahweh in the Bible. I told you not to do it, and you did. Our next story is Cain and Abel, the sons of Adam and Eve. We have four people living now on the entire planet. That's, <laughs> that's where we are in the history of humanity. Just four people, and one of them murders the other. <laughs> is, is this the least successful family ever? Think about Adam. He had a kid murdered. A wife God hates, his other son, a murderer. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's the first human. That's his experience. Life is hard, people. A lot of ups and downs. Where's our character God in the story of Cain and Abel? Listen to what incites Cain. And Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in process of time it came to pass that Cain brought of the fruit of the ground an offering unto the Lord. And Abel he also brought of the firstlings of his flock and the fat thereof. And the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering, but unto Cain and to his offering he had not respect. And Cain was very wroth, and his countenance fell. Later then Cain talks to Abel and rises up and kills him. Maybe that was an overreaction. Maybe Cain let his emotions, his disappointment, his frustration with God get the best of him. But what was God doing in this story? In this story, he condemned Adam and Cain to the fields. He required them to toil there. That was the punishment for eating the forbidden fruit. What did he want Cain to do? So Cain brings his sacrifice unto the Lord from the fields that he has been toiling in at God's command. And yet God prefers Abel's. Why? 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 What kind of expectations does God have? Thanks, but no thanks, Cain. Oh, but I do like your brother Abel's sacrifice. I'll put my religious hat on and say, as I would expect ministers to say, interpreters of the Bible, defenders of the Bible, I would expect them to say, we cannot understand God's reasons. 
we can only see his power and marvel at his mysteries. Now I'll take my religious hat off and look at God as a character, as if he were a sheriff in some small town or he were some other law enforcement official and say he's, he's kind of arbitrary. God is kind of tough to deal with. Let's move on to Noah and see where our character of God is in that. He starts out, the story starts out where God is planning to wipe out all of humanity. <laughs> Why? Because they are wicked. What is he? Why does he think that's a sufficient reason? Because he created them? And what are we to take from that? Don't we have free will? But free will comes with a heavy price. We don't have the free will, apparently, to disobey or be wicked. God is just giving up on humanity because he is displeased? At what exactly? And Abraham and Isaac, where is God in that story? Yes, God saved Isaac at the end. In other words, he didn't make a father murder his own son just to pay tribute to him, to God. But even the request to make Abraham climb that mountain, I imagine him whistling on the way, chatting with his son about the gentle breeze and the beautiful wildflowers, telling stories to this lamb of a boy, and the boy kept in the dark. Hey, looks like we're going to make an offering, Dad, but where's the lamb? Ugh, it's like a horror story. Abraham says, God will provide one himself, because Abraham, father of the boy, cannot bring himself to tell the truth. It's you, son. You are the sacrifice. I'm going to kill you up there, because that's what God asked me to do. And suddenly the shock of that little boy of being tied up and placed on a sacrificial altar, seeing his father raise the knife, knowing that he's about to be killed by his own father, that his own father would do this to him. That every single time from then on that he's whistling with his dad, he could be seconds away from the knife because his father might have received instructions from God that his father will follow. What kind of a test is that? Why, God, why? Because it's that important to be worshipped and loved? Again, I'll put my religious head on and say, from God's perspective, it is. People are evil and wicked, and demonstrating devotion is extremely important if we're to do any good at all in this world. I'll take my religious head off and say, this omnipotent being has some serious issues. That's what's so fascinating. That's why the book is so magnetic, because it's hard and strange to be a human. We struggle with love and hate and good and evil. We burn with lust and tremble with fear. And we have no idea, really, how to get along with people all the time, especially when those people might want the things we have or hate us for no reason at all. We wrestle with mystery and miracle and the amazing power of life and the awful power of not knowing. Isn't that the true human condition? Isn't that at the heart of our dilemma? We are clearly the smartest beings on the planet, miles ahead of other living things, far more cognitive ability, and yet the very basics of existence are completely unknown and unknowable. How did we get here? 
Why are we here? What is our purpose? How? Why? Aren't we like children? Smart, but baffled. And isn't God something like a father? Try to see a parent, a good, well-meaning parent, from the eyes of a three-year-old. Let's say the three-year-old wants to play with an electrical socket. Let's say it's your three-year-old. Wouldn't you lie to the three-year-old if you had to? There's a monster in there. He'll bite your hand off. You'd probably do it if nothing else worked. How many parents resort to saying, because I said so, or don't talk to your mother that way? Doesn't that sound vain? Wouldn't it strike a bunch of three-year-olds as unreasonable? Is the monster in the electrical socket supportable by scientific evidence? Of course not. We're trying to explain to the three-year-old how to function in the world. We created you. We love you. But now we have to take care of you. Our job is to keep you safe and to get you ready for the world. We don't always have time to explain. Or if the three-year-old is too young and simple to explain the real reason, we just say, you won't believe us that a fork in the socket will harm you and no explanation short of monsterdom will persuade you. So we have to do what we can and you'll understand why we did it later. Maybe when you're a parent. Maybe that's the answer. Maybe we to God are like children are to a grown-up. It's really the only way that I can make sense of God in the Old Testament. Take the story of Cain and Abel again. Cain kills Abel and goes about his business. Who catches him? God. And what does God do? He asks him a question. Asks him. Think about that. He asks him a question. God is omniscient. He already knows what happened. But he asks him. He says, Cain, where is your brother? Why does God do that? Why do parents do it? He's teaching him how to feel. He's teaching him the experience of knowing that he did something wrong, that he can't just murder his brother and get away with it. He's seeing if Cain will come clean, if he'll repent, if he's ready to fathom the wrongness of what he did. It's a test. It's watching his psychology. There are, from a literary perspective, there are seedlings of a detective story here, too. There's a mystery. Abel's gone, and we have a suspect. How will the suspect react? Will he show surprise? Will he start the search? I'll find him. I'll find him, God. Don't worry. Instead, Cain cries out, Am I my brother's keeper? Just like a guilty person, a guilty wrongdoer. The story is so good. It really is like a detective story. And the psychology here of humans and how they react when they feel guilt, the psychology is just off the charts. Parents of three-year-olds know exactly what this is like. Who broke this? Who spilled this? Uh, how should I know? Not me. <laughs> That's exactly what God is doing, I think. It's just what we do. We parents, we do with our three-year-olds. It's how we teach. It's how we parent. It's how we expect children, human children, to learn. Why are we here? What is our purpose? We humans have a thirst, an unquenchable thirst for knowledge. 
the thirst that drove Adam and Eve to the apple in the very first book of the Bible. How did all this happen? Why us? Why this predicament? What are we supposed to do now? The Old Testament fills these gaps in an intoxicating way. It fills them and still leaves us hungry, but it's rich enough to return to again and again for more. The stories shock with their power. The moods swing from tranquility to violence, back to peaceful repose. Poetry expresses love and devotion and wonderment and joy. God, Yahweh, commands the stage, but people, humans, are on full display at their best and at their absolute worst. That's what's so great about the Bible. Put my religious hat on and say, this is a great, great book. I'll take my religious hat off and say, this is a great, great book. That's it for this time, for this episode, The Hebrew Bible. Join us next time as we travel to ancient Greece and the formation of the Western mind, starting with the epic poems that began a stunning literary outpouring. That's right, it's the Iliad and the Odyssey, and a tribute to Homer, the blind bard who shaped those works nearly 3,000 years ago. A reminder that you can find more at historyofliterature.com, or my personal website, jackwilson.com. That's J-A-C-K-E, wilson.com. Thank you for joining us. I hope you enjoyed the episode, and we'll see you next time on The History of Literature. <laughs>